Hello and welcome to the Alien Minute Podcast, the daily podcast where we carefully dissect the movie Alien one minute at a time. I'm John Ingle. And I'm Mitch Bryan. And today we'll be discussing Minute 15, which begins with the Nostromo clearing the umbilicus and ends with the Nostromo entering the planet's atmosphere. We're joined by Todd Norris here on our this the fifth and final day of this week. Yep. Um, thanks so much for coming in and doing this. Thank you. I guess we can start by um, sort of mentioning that that moment of the disconnect, right. which I love. I mean, it's it's a it feels like a total stop motion gag. You know, it, there's yeah. something about the about the way that that model moves. Yeah. Um, but it's really it, it's punctuated with a great a great sound, and then this sense of it clearing. And again, there's no gravity in space really, but I guess it must have had a little push off. I think little jets you, fired at it. Or yeah, something. you get a little hiss sound there that might have been uh, a little like what, what do they call that a retro. Uh, well, I'm blanking on what it's called, like a little thruster. Yeah, re- yeah thruster, yeah, retro, retro thruster, one. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, it's a really yeah, it's a really cool show. It's really cool. It makes you miss the the old model days, doesn't it? The, I love the just the tactile look of the little model of the yeah. Nostromos. It's wonderful. So and then a big a big cell when we move into the back into the cockpit, um, we're aided with all sorts of visuals to to help sell the gag of 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 disconnecting. And then flying toward the planet, right? Yeah, yeah, and uh, uh, you know all of those displays, the the readouts, uh, were actually, I believe, sixteen millimeter rear projected onto a s- screen as opposed to actual computer monitors. And I suppose to be really clear about it, this was the these were in the days before computer graphics really existed. So all of those displays are hand animated. Um, to look like computer displays, but uh, which is what they did in two thousand and one. Exactly. As well. Yeah. So to think that somebody <laughs> or some team of people had to create that frame by frame by frame, um, and then they had to put it on sixteen millimeter film, and they had to rig sixteen projectors inside that set somehow to rear project onto the screen. That's pretty amazing stuff. But uh, and that brings in the idea that is pretty unusual, and I don't think has been done on very many other pictures, although I think it was done on Blade Runner, is the the readouts projecting back onto the actors' faces, which I believe you guys may have mentioned in a previous episode. Um, but they literally just shot a 16-millimeter. They just pointed the projector at the actors' faces and ran that film. Completely impossible. Yeah. It's, it's, it's funny. As much as the rest of the movie's lighting is slavish to realism, that is a clearly non-realistic effect. Um, so all I can figure is that there are times when Ridley just thinks, hey, that looks really cool, and cool trumps the initial philosophy of realism. Well, yeah. and if, you, if you spend that much, I mean, we're 15 minutes into the movie, you've spent this much time establishing the realistic aesthetic of the movie, you can get by with a couple of those. You're not taking sure. this out of the movie. This isn't something that's super obvious. But you can do just some style over, uh, style form over function uh ideas if you want to and i say good on them i like it i like the effect i don't need it to be possible i think the sound when you hear the the rocket engines fire up i suppose there's a case to be made that what we're hearing is the way that the crew hears the sound of the rockets firing up but but it's you know it's seen from space right and so even though in space no one can hear you scream (laughs) you can hear the rocket engines fire up you know But, but it's one of the few times um that it does that. I mean, I think it, it does kind of follow with 2001 trying to embrace the idea of the vacuum of space as a as an aesthetic. Yeah, I think in that particular case, um, 
you know, in the music here is selling the, the drama of this um, very practical, you know, we're seeing this process, like we talked about in the last minute, this process of, you know, firing up the Nostromo, detaching, heading down the planet, and we're seeing this process, and I think it sells the drama of that a little bit, with, not with only with the music, but you need that punctuation of the of the engines firing. I think it would be a little bit anticlimactic right. if it just went light and started moving. But, I think you need, yeah. you need that sound cue to to add to the drama and, and it action. is augmented by that amazing score and that's yeah. this is one of it's the you know the main alien theme and it's just a gorgeous piece of music this is really this is the first piece of you know space opera score we've gotten so far right other than the the maybe the cryo pods opening uh, for mm -hmm. the most part it's been pretty i mean um it's been a little bit more subtle and this is where we're getting big sweeping um score over I mean, again, we're this is just process. This is just day to day business for these guys, but we're adding a little bit to it with the. You mentioned the you mentioned the 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 flower opening and the cryo. We, yeah. I, we've had a couple of comments yeah. um, about that, and that will be addressed in a future episode. But uh, it is not incorrect that it is Jerry Goldsmith's music. Yes, well, it is Jerry Goldsmith's music. We have a guest coming later that uh, knows an awful lot about Jerry Goldsmith, and uh, we're going to talk about it more then. But yeah, the the cue on the on the cryopods opening is an interesting story. So, hmm. but this this cue is is just gorgeous, and it moves us into the into the adventure. It's it's one of the few moments where I feel like we have an adventure movie rather than a horror movie, yeah. because almost every other revelation, even though we're going to technologically get in our spacesuits and explore, they're all filled with such dread. Mm -hmm. And that's one nice thing about this moment is that it kind of opens up emotionally to a place that's not filled with dread, but actually filled with, I would say, wonder, right? That's mm -hmm. a, a fair, a wondrous cue, I think. Yeah, which, you know, that may be uh, a sign of the times that it was made in the sense that we were still in the middle. The, the, the space shuttle hadn't launched yet, and we were still, you know, like in the wake of the moon landing and the Apollo missions. And in the 70s, there was still a much more of a sense of, this uh, exploring outer space being this wondrous thing. And I, I still, again, I want to return to that. Um, but we are so inundated with science fiction films that anymore this lengthy process and all this kind of stuff just seems maybe to this generation sort of like, yeah, yeah, you know, we've seen it. Since, you know, the time I was two years old, I've played video games that's had all this stuff. So it, it, I think that might be part of the difference. Um, but certainly that, John, that Jerry Goldsmith uh, cue that signals adventure as opposed to dread. Um, I think just, again, it, it's a great bait and switch. It helps sell what happens later, much like how Jaws, play the John Williams score, plays like a high seas adventure film for a lot of that yeah. until the shark shows up. Yeah, like a sea up. shanty, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. All right, so as far as what's going on with the action of the scene, we're just seeing the the crew do their jobs, um, communicating. We talked a lot about the sound design and communicating back and forth. Uh, there's one particular shot, though, that I wanted to talk about and see what you guys thought about this. It's going to be uh, under the category of one of my kind of weird theories. <laughs> um, but we get Ash in his... Uh, I'm not exactly sure what Ash's duty is here. I guess we could talk about that for just a second. What do you think Ash's job is um, in landing the ship? It, it seems to be kind of important. I don't know. I would assume he's monitoring atmospheric conditions and right. he's in his is he in his, his blister is that where he's sitting in the he seems a, to be, he's got his own yeah, window yeah to, that's his blister and there's a uh and that is a obvious matte shot one of the 
first, probably the first really obvious mm -hmm. special effects shot that's a little... Uh, it's a little dicey. It's a little yeah. shaky, yeah. Right. Um, unlike everything else that is shaking, <laughs> that's another dead giveaway is it's a lockdown shot. But he is sitting there in his blister, and then is this... So, this followed by the shot you're looking. Sure, he's so he's sitting. We we see him sitting, and then we get a POV shot of the planet's horizon line, and it's just you see a little bit of the tip of the ship, and you see the horizon line, but otherwise it's just straight point of view. Then we cut back, and he flick, flicks a few switches, and when we cut back to his point of view shot again, it's it's like a heads up display, right? Now this is not at all. I'm talking about this as an illusory thing. It's not a. I don't think he's. They're actually trying to tell us that this is Ash's point of view changing. Oh, like he has a heads-up display in his head. Yeah, <laughs> but I do think it's. I think there's a chance that there's an illusion to this here. Robot vision. It makes me think of it. Yeah, he sort of switches on like a RoboCop or a Terminator kind of <laughs> heads-up display. Like it's, I, it's a little crazy, but I, I do, I get that sense, and of course that comes from knowing that he is. I just get that sense that they're playing with just with the cutting here and throwing illusion at us. Nothing you would ever pick up with on the first time you see the movie, not knowing what's going on. But I don't know. I probably reading too much into it, but I just uh, thought about that when I was watching this minute. If it isn't RoboVision and it's a it's a readout, right? It's a heads up display. If yeah. it's a heads up display, is that Ash's point of view that we're seeing then? Well, okay, from so, his point of view. Yes, yeah. we're seeing his point of view. To be fair, he hits a switch and a red light kind of flashes on him. And you, that's the heads-up display coming on externally. Right. Uh, that's why I know it's not a practical. We're not actually seeing this. But to me, it's just a, another little, like, Easter egg kind of hint. But um, it is interesting that the eyes of the ship are through Ash. Yeah. And that sort of, there is that sort of connection between Ash and Mother. And it is interesting that, you know, who we know Ash is that that the objective POV from the ship comes from him that he's the one out there in the blister and not a human member I think of the crew. that that's one of the strategies too that that is embraced by the director in this movie even though we will get closer and closer eventually to Ripley as a focal character uh it's jumping around from one point of view to the next I mean I'm not necessarily saying it's shot you know subjective objective back and forth but because it has this kind of godlike view of of the proceedings it's able to move you toward characters and toward particular points of view and then switch you to another character and move you to their point of view. And it's great on one hand because it keeps you unbalanced. You're, you're not allowed to grab onto anybody just yet. You know, sure. you're, you're kind of being forced to, as a fly on the wall or you know, to be an observer and not necessarily a participant, which I really love. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's talk about the planet's surface because we get our first view at the very end of this minute of, of, the, of the ship entering the atmosphere. Yeah, we do. Yeah, and so uh, probably the, the most, at least in terms of cinematography, one of the unusual things about this sequence of the ship landing is that Ridley Scott himself uh, excused himself from the main unit photography with the actors and went 30 miles away to the studio where the special effects are being shot to personally oversee the camera operation of this whole sequence. Um, I think the special effects crew were both um, happy and sad about Ridley Scott's participation in this movie. When you watch the behind-the-scenes footage, you can tell that they, they say, he pushed us to do our best, and he was very visionary, and that was infectious, but they're also like... He was a pain in the ass. You know, I mean, his controlling nature really, because I think they shot a ton of stuff 
that then just got thrown out and they kind of started over from scratch when Ridley Scott came in and just supervised everything. And this was definitely one of those scenes where, you know, more smoke, more smoke. And, you know, I think the model of the ship was on a big forklift that was actually hidden behind the model itself and the smoke kind of uh, hid it from view. But uh, anyway, that that level of participation and control uh, has in terms of visual effects, having the director handle that, I don't think it's been really done before or since. Maybe Stanley Kubrick did in 2001, and maybe that's what gave him the idea. Um, And that brings up just something I want to talk about, is that, again, Ridley Scott was the A-camera operator on this film. And in British films, that was considered okay for the director to operate the camera. In Hollywood, by contrast, at least in union studio films... The director cannot operate the camera. And so after Alien, when he came to do Blade Runner, it it really bummed him out to not be able to operate the camera. And he's gone on record saying, you know, I think operating the camera is the best job on the floor because you're right there and it's very immediate and you, you're the first person to see what's going on, whether you've got it or not. And I have to agree. I mean, as a as a, somebody who, when I direct my films, I operate the camera and some people criticize me for that but there is a definite thrill of being right there in the center of the action and um having to like a dancer or a boxer or something kind of you know negotiate the frame with with the actors it's a real it's a kind of infectious uh euphoric experience or it can be Soderbergh operates his own stuff too yeah yeah Yeah, so there you go And Peter Himes, did he? He was always a DP. I, I don't, don't know, know if he, he was the operator. Yeah, yeah. but yeah. Soderbergh for sure. So there's a there's a small camp of you know director operators. Um, Stanley Kubrick operated all the handheld stuff in his movies. Right. Yeah. So I, and again that, that I think that on that sort of hunting around that we talked about in previous episodes of this, where you, that sense of discovering the frame. Um, I think as a director, he gave himself permission to do that. Whereas if there had been a camera operator sort of looking around for a shot, like he would have been fired like that. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> All right. All is, right. Is that any? I, thanks so much for coming this week. We really, really appreciated everything Thank you had you. to say. Thank you. This was a blast. Will you come back maybe later I, in the run? For sure. Okay. Yeah. Was there anything you wanted to, uh, you know, you have an online presence, anything you want to promote? And... Oh, yeah, sure. Um, well, Mitch and I do uh, projects together under the name of Jetpack Pictures, uh, short films and music videos and the like. So if, if you want to check those out, it's at jetpackpix.com, and that's P-I-X. Uh, and I have a website that's toddnorris.net that has stuff that I've done, so you can check those out. All right. And you can, uh, of course, check us out at alienminute.com and uh, on Twitter at alienminutepod. Um, make sure to go follow us there and of course uh, go to iTunes and subscribe there and leave us a, a pro- an appropriate review for how you enjoy the show um, thanks again and we'll see you next week <laughs>